Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the lawsuit anywhere settled on buyer-broker commissions and what's happening at the National Association of Realtors. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back, Sarah. Great to have you back. So we had huge news this week on the real estate front. Can you um, give us, you know, kind of a summary of what happened with the Anywhere suit that got settled? Yeah, this is major. So for those who have been following the commission cases, very significant news this week. Anywhere Real Estate, which, you know, with its combined entities is is a massive, massive player in the space. Uh, they agreed to settle two of the three lawsuits uh, that have been filed. Uh, so that's the Morrill case and the Sitzer Burnett cases. And, um, and, you know, when you look at the total potential liabilities for all of the defendants in these various cases, we're, we're looking at the tens of billions of dollars. So let's back up a little bit and, and talk a little about uh, kind of how we got here. And these cases have been winding their way through the courts in uh, Missouri and Illinois and other, and other jurisdictions for several years now. And the NAR is a defendant on two of the three major cases. And it looks like we're going to finally see some major changes to the way buyer side real estate agents are paid commissions. And essentially to, to really boil it down to its most simplistic terms, the plaintiffs in these cases are arguing that the way the NAR and MLS's uh, policies have been, you know, essentially kept over the last hundred or so years means that the seller is the one who is paying for the buyer services. And this is essentially our violation of antitrust law in America. And so they're arguing that buyers should be basically dealing with their own, you know, financial obligations as it relates to the agents. Now the NAR says this is absolute nonsense and and the system in America that has worked for so long allows the buyer to afford the down payment, to afford the house, and this makes for a much smoother transaction in total. Um, and of course, the plaintiffs say that's not the case. And we're effectively, we have sellers subsidizing buyers really only to the benefit of the kind of the, the agent, you know, infrastructure that the NAR and the various MLSs and brokerages support. So the fact that anywhere, which is a huge brokerage decided, look, these cases are not worth fighting. We're going to settle and we're going to pay $83.5 million in total to settle is is massively consequential. And there are a bunch of other big brokerages that are party to these lawsuits. And, and I think there's a very strong likelihood now that those suits will also uh, you know, be settled with, with those defendants, including Keller Williams and Remax and, and a bunch of others. So what sort of concessions anywhere conceded? When uh, you you look at you know how the buy side agents are going to be compensated, still is not clear. So we're in the early stages of the legal settlement. 
Um, but we do know that they are significant changes. Uh, Steve Berman, he's the, the managing partner and the co-founder of Hagen's Berman Sobol Shapiro LLP, which represents the plaintiffs. The moral suit said that the settlement includes significant changes to anywhere's practices relating to the conduct that we have challenged. Um, but, you know, the terms of the settlement, they're, they're not going to be public until the plaintiffs file a motion to approve the settlement agreement. And that could be, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months away. We, we don't exactly know what that timeline looks like. Um, but I do think that buyer broker compensation is going to, if not be entirely done as we know it, it's going to change pretty significantly. You know, this is probably the biggest combined brokerage company in the country. And and they're saying this is just not something that we want to do any longer. So Brooklyn Han reporter on the case who's followed this from the beginning, spoke to Steve Murray. He's the co-founder of Real Trends Consulting. And he said, there are essentially three possible outcomes for this lawsuit. The first is, and this is the worst case scenario, the broker that represents the buyer will have to negotiate their own fee with that client and the seller can no longer be compelled to make a blanket offer of compensation in order to get that listing on the MLS. Another scenario is that more and more buyers will go directly to the listing agent, in which case they just go, you know, they, they don't have their own representation. You have a, a dual, um, you know, broker agreement, essentially, dual agent, rather. The third scenario, according to Murray, is that you have a whole new kind of buyer broker that essentially, you know, sees <laughs> sees a business opportunity here and they just charge a flat hourly fee to represent the buyers. So, you know, it's it's still early days. And I think regardless of whether anywhere and the other uh, parties to the lawsuit, excluding the NAR, decide to settle this, um, there are a lot of um, brokerage affiliates and, you know, different franchises that are already looking at how do we get ahead of this? How do we start looking into buyer agency agreements, you know, if they're not there yet? Because the, the software isn't really built right now um, to handle, you know, having, you know, anything beyond kind of the traditional arrangement right now. So that's that's an interesting wrinkle here. Having said all of that, Sarah, the NAR continues to fight this. And they are not giving up. You know, this is also an agreement that that very much suits many of their parties, right? And and I, I don't think that they're going to settle, even if the brokerage businesses um, that they ostensibly represent um, decide that this isn't worth fighting. Well, I can tell you, I'm at the national. I'm at the convention for the National Hispanic Organization of Real Estate Associates, and this was. All anyone wanted to talk about last night at their cocktail party, right? I mean, it came up several times. People were like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, one of, one of the things that they brought up was the fact that anywhere settled, that the settlement amount was basically, and, and it says it in our story and in the press release, right, is like that was based on what they could pay. They paid the highest amount that they could based on their finances. So what that said to the people that I talked to was like, there, that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty strong case that they that they didn't have a lot of choices or that you know they they knew they were going to lose or whatever because of the the way that that was settled. What what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, anywhere has absolutely struggled in this environment, 
I don't know of a brokerage that hasn't. Um, it's really hard to make good money when there are very few transactions and anywhere, you know, they're, they're known for having professional real estate agents. This isn't one of the, the kind of brokerages that will just give anybody, uh, you know, a place to hang their license and they charge them a desk fee and then they go, you know, whatever, if you do, if you do business, great. If you don't like whatever, we're getting our money, you know, our, our revenue comes from you, the agent. So what do we care? Uh, you know, any, anywhere is very much a professional services company in real estate, and they are down. And as is Compass, as is Cobalt Banker, as is Remax, as is you know every other uh, kind of more traditional brokerage out there, Compass is not profitable, right? So, Compass is, by the way, not uh, named as a party to any of these lawsuits, but. Just by way of example, none of these companies are are super well positioned, right? And so, one, I do think that makes anywhere a little bit more likely to settle. But two, anywhere has never been, uh, you know, super supportive of these rules that are already in place right now. Uh, they've been among probably the only one that I know of to really say, "Hey, we just don't know that this is the right course of action to take," and they've been, you know thinking about making changes for quite some time now. So I don't think it's a huge surprise. Uh, I do think it'll be really telling if the other brokerages decide to follow in anywhere's footsteps. Uh, Keller Williams is not a publicly traded company. We don't know a whole lot about their finances. I would be surprised if they were doing markedly better than Compass or Anywhere or EXP or any of the big players, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, you know, home services. I, I don't think that's very likely. They're all basically doing the same thing, right? They're all operating in the same environment. They have agents and brokers who do more high end. They have some who do more kind of low end volume business. Everybody's you know, in the same storm. So I, I do think that we're going to see how resolute these brokerages are in the coming weeks. These these cases are going to trial fairly soon. If we're going to see settlements, you know, and, and we don't know all the finances behind kind of how they got to that 83.5 million, uh, you know, typically when, when it comes to trials of this nature, they look at how many deals that that um you know entity was involved with whether it's through franchise arms or you know their their kind of proper business and and they see what their potential liability could be of the total right so like nobody thinks that anywhere you know is would be on the hook for like 10 billion right that's not realistic the company's not even worth that much um, none of these companies are you know when when we look at the total sum we're looking at probably north of 45 billion dollars when you look at all the lawsuits that have been filed, um, even the NAR, which uh, probably has definitely has more money than it knows what to do with, um, doesn't have that kind of cash to to make these sorts of payments. Um, so, I want to see a trial personally. You know, I, I know a lot of folks in the industry who do support uh, you know the buyer commission structure as it currently exists. Felt like they have a really strong case. And, um, you know, but, but anywhere deciding not to fight the good fight, I think is really a significant blow to their case. And I think it makes it even more likely that some of the brokers decide this just isn't worth it. If we can get out of this for a hundred million, even, you know, compared to what they could potentially spend and all of the, you know, now, now anywhere kind of, they, they get to do it a little bit, a little bit on their own terms, right? Because they're settling directly 
with the plaintiff so they can say, again, we don't know what what exactly is going to change about their structure. Um, but you have a lot more wiggle room than if it's going to come from a judge uh, and, you know, a, a jury and you, just, you don't have as many options in, the, in that case. So we'll find out probably in the next few weeks. So it's really interesting in the follow-up story that Brooklyn did where she talked to Steve and he, he talked about those different options and what it might look like now. Nothing is set up for that. So, so you think about it just from a, a very basic standpoint. First of all, your, your home buyers and home sellers, they may have no idea about this. They, they don't know that anything has changed or things are about to change or what their new options are. And really no one, you know, because it's not, it's not put out yet. Um, one of the people she talked to talked about how, you know, the software isn't even set up this way. The agreements aren't set up this way. Like, we would we would have to be in some ways starting from scratch on how things are um, organized, even at different companies, right? So just from a very practical standpoint, it seems like this is going to take a while to to work out. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Sarah. It's, it's funny. I think they're a little bit more prepared on the real estate side. There are there are franchises, there are companies that have looked into you know how do we um, manually you know, override some software so that we can put in zero on the buyer broker side if we have to. Um, you know, there, there are other cases out there in, in which, you know, there's movement toward uh, being able to input zero into the, the buy side uh, agent compensation form. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the software is going to need to get rejiggered. We're going to need a lot of, I think, education from especially the franchise owners. I, I think, you know, you have the largesse of maybe a major brokerage entity like anywhere. They have an army of lawyers. They can definitely put out guidelines. They can make sure um, that they have, you know, their I's dotted, their T's crossed, and, and they're able to, um, you know, get that information in front of their agents and franchise owners. But are they going to be able to handle you know, every scenario that comes up, I, I probably not. I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, workshops and education. Depending on how this goes, we may need some of the actual government regulators to step in and say, hey, this is what is appropriate. This is what is not. These are the best practices. This is how you settle, you know, a commission dispute in this, you know, new era of, uh, you know, real estate agent commissions. We just don't know yet. I, I do know that there are a lot of folks on the real estate side who are looking into how they make changes, even if whatever the resolution is, it ends up in appeal for many years. I think that's probably the most likely scenario that let's say the NAR wins uh, and um, the plaintiffs, they're going to fight in appeal for sure. If the NAR loses, it's effectively a guarantee that they are going to fight, you know, whatever the, the judgment is. So I, I don't think we're going to have a final outcome for probably a couple of years, maybe longer. Um, but you have to be prepared, right? If, if the judge rules at the end of the year, early 2024, that uh, in fact, the current commission structure does violate tenants of U.S. antitrust law, you can't just be like, well, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take our time. We'll, we'll make sure we get it sorted. You know, the day that judgment comes into effect, they're going to have to make changes, right? And you, you know, real estate is a slow moving ship. You can't 
you, you can't do everything, uh, you know, that day. So you have to prepare, you have to plan for it. Uh, and, and some are doing more preparation than, than others. What's interesting to me is we're, we're also working on a follow-up story related to how uh, mortgage loan officers will have to deal with this kind of issue and, and, you know, the mortgage side of it, because think about the referral network, think about the, the real estate ecosystem, the buyer side agent is usually the conduit to the financing you know, for that buyer. And so that's probably going to change if the, the buy side real estate agent is getting paid in a very different fashion, that may change how their relationship, uh, you know, is with the LO, with the lender. And the funny thing is when Connie Kim and Brooklyn Han spoke to folks on both sides, a lot of the folks on the, the mortgage side have not been planning at all. They barely know anything about these cases. They are very much in the dark. This is not something that is top of mind. And, and so that, that is actually quite surprising to me um, because just given that anywhere has already agreed to make uh, an $84 million payment to make this go away. Um, I think there's going to be some changes coming, you know, how big, how small, we don't know yet, but it's going to change relationships for sure. And real estate is a relationships business. This is such a good point. Um, and I, I think that there are these um, far reaching consequences that maybe on some of the sides we haven't even thought of yet. You know, um, you mentioned NAR uh, and that, you know, there are people who feel like they there's a good case to be made for the for the current system. And, you know, they would say that this is in protection of the buyer who gets professional, um, you know, representation and is protected in this way and, you know, gets uh all these options. Um, what do you think, what do you think's going on at NAR? Well, what isn't going on at NAR? It's, it's been a really messy time for the, the trade group. There was a New York times expose, uh, about two weeks ago that came out and uh, essentially painted a picture of an organization that at best has been lacking in, um, you know, how serious it takes, sexual harassment and, and other claims uh, primarily against women and um, at worst has worked very diligently to stop those women from speaking out and uh, has had a toxic culture for many years that it hasn't not only addressed, but it has, you know, worsened in, in uh, you know, the, the last couple of years. So, so that, that, is in and of itself very troubling. And, and there are a lot of folks out there on the real estate agent side who say, we don't believe that the NAR is a good representation of us as professionals and we're paying dues. And what do we get out of it? We get access to the MLS because we have to, in a lot of cases, not in every case, you know, it depends where you are. It depends on, uh, you know, your setup, where, where your license is, but, you may need to be an NAR member to access the MLS. And that is the lifeblood of being a real estate agent. If you don't have MLS access, it is very, very, very difficult. Um, I, I would argue nearly impossible to do your job to represent your clients properly. And so you're effectively forced into this position where you're paying dues to an organization that has kind of a famously... It's like Soviet uh, kind of governance structure. They have, you know, these 
ridiculous member committees. They're like 75 members on the executive board. They have all these other sprawling committees full of volunteers, right? And and you have to drink the NAR Kool-Aid to be a volunteer. And, you know, whether you believe in the mission, whether you believe in, uh, you know, that they do a lot of good work and, you know, you take a little bit of the bad with a lot of the good in, in any big organization uh, with 1.5 million members, right? Like you're, you're going to have some incidents, you're going to have some issues to overcome. But regardless of that fact, for so many agents in America, you don't have an option. You have to be a member of this trade group if you want to do your job. Maybe that's not the best system. Maybe the NAR needs more oversight. Maybe there are people out there who think the whole thing should be blown up, right? Or at the very least, uh, there should be a new executive committee or some of the professional staff that have been in place that have allowed uh, these incidents to occur year after year, um, you know, and what, and what appears to be, you know, um, some campaigns to silence critics uh, that that shouldn't continue. And yet the CEO, Bob Goldberg, remains in place, right? You have a lot of um, people who are supportive of the executive board. And I think there are real questions about the governance. I think there are real questions about how they deal with criticism. And this is all separate from a lot of the lobbying work that they do. There are people who have been uh, unhappy with some of the political work that they've done. You know, and again, like this is a massive sprawling organization. It has hundreds of professional staff. It's paying these executives, you know, around a million dollars in some cases, sometimes more. It's a real big nonprofit. It is also the largest lobbyist in America, right? And so a lot of what they do does benefit the real estate agents. Um, but a lot of it, I, I think, is pretty questionable ethically. And the NAR is now in a position where if they don't reform themselves, I think they run the risk of having someone else reform them. You just you cannot have an organization that is so front facing um, that represents so many people, especially women. By the way, women make up about two thirds of, of real estate agents and the membership of this organization. And here you have uh, you know just such a high profile, very public, very ugly um, Me Too moment years after <laughs> it should have ended. Right, the president, the former president Kenny Parcell, who was accused of um, you know being in, involved in 16 separate incidents of discrimination, intimidation, or harassment, sexual harassment specifically, uh, did resign uh, a few days after the New York Times story came out. They did appoint a woman to take his place. That is some progress. Uh, but the NAR to date has resisted calls to make a lot of other significant changes. Uh, so we're, we're still very much in the middle of this. They they had a meeting just last night and, and we're working on figuring out you know, what, what happened at that meeting. Um, but so far as we can tell, the NAR has not, not really come out and said, you know what, we made a huge mistake. We have, uh, we, we acknowledge our, our failures as an organization. We have not protected women. We haven't, you know, safeguarded, um, you know, people who needed protection from other members of this group. And they're just kind of letting it, it's it's hard to explain their PR uh, position at this point, but it seems like they're just maybe hoping it dies down. I, I don't understand it at all, um, but they barely even acknowledge that there was a problem. I mean, in the New York Times article, Bob Goldberg even said, uh, you know, that 
he didn't think that there was a culture of a, a cultural issue at, at the organization. I mean, it, it just absolutely bonkers. It's, it's kind of hard to fathom, uh, but that's, that's where we are. It seems at the least it's, it's tone deaf, right? Um, I know we had um, last week, there was a lot of rumors going around that, you know, there was going to be this executive, this emergency executive meeting and what was going to happen out of that. A lot of people thought we would see some, either firings or resignations from from uh, the top Bob Bob spot, especially, and that didn't happen. Um, there wasn't there was a meeting, um, and there was a statement that was put out after the meeting about you know kind of coming to terms with with you know what happened and what the changes they need to make. But it it was pretty surprising to a lot of people we talked to that there was not um, some significant leadership changes. So it it is to your point. It's like it it does seem like that's a that's an interesting route to take in our current situation. So we will be watching that. I know Um, we're recording this on Thursday. So when you said last night, that was a a meeting that happened on uh, Wednesday night. We will see what happens. Well, James, thank you so much for being on and giving us, um, you know, the scoop on what's happening on, on this very important issue that literally affects our entire industry, real estate, mortgage, whatever, as you said, I mean, a change here is going to be, have a ripple effect um, into others, uh, other parts of the uh, housing ecosystem. So I appreciate your, your diligence and your reporters keeping up on it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.